So in the middle of the uh, 80s, Tom, you stepped away, and when you returned with uh, a record called No Longer I, it was on a new label in 1988, and it seemed you had undergone a spiritual awakening, and you moved away. We already, you know, we already found out why you moved away from, from the Tommy Gun sound. But what transpired you specifically to come back with uh, that record at that time? Uh, just before I left Arista, one of the last things I was, I was asked to do was something that almost every black artist has been challenged with. There's a period of time, and still exists today to some, some degree, where the only thing that we were permitted to do on record was I, what I call between the sheets music. Uh, it seemed like the only message a black artist could put out there was, you know, sex, sex, sex. Um, and I was asked to do that. Uh, and I, I frankly said, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, which is which is kind of ironic having a song like Thighs High in my background, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that at another point. But um, I, it just wasn't me. I had become a born-again Christian in 83, uh, and I wanted to live life true to my beliefs, uh, true to my faith. And I just decided I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm going to try you know if that door closes down musically then whatever music i do is going to try to reflect where my beliefs are at uh i had an opportunity in 86 to do what i basically call a jazz praise record uh it was for a label called malico records um uh, and it was not a gospel record but just kind of a, a spiritual jazz uh trial and error record and i don't know if it's so i don't think it's sold very well at all but it was it was where my head was at my heart was at uh, my heart is my heart is still there um uh, i'm necessarily recording in that vein currently but uh that's that's where i had to go at that point i was looking at the credits there i noticed you had um bobby humphrey on there yeah yeah bobby bob baldwin uh emadine rivera quite a few good new york players yeah it's interesting. Uh, I mean, there's. You're right. In the early '80s, there was, you know, like uh, I between the sheets. Literally, Isley Brothers between the sheets was all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Juicy yeah, fruit, and I mean, there's, there's so many songs that. Yeah. yeah. So, that ended up being your last release, though, until the mid '90s when you came back on on another label. But more contemporary sounding again. So, what what transpired for you during during that period, Tom? Uh, I had decided that I was going to go back to my I won't say first love, but other first love, uh, which was aviation. I mean, I, that, that's again way back when music was supposed to be my cool out, my hobby, uh, and basically when the money dried up in music. Bills have to be paid, and uh, you know, my wife said, you know, you always, you always wanted to go into the airlines. I mean, you're qualified. You've you've got all your licenses. Why don't you go fly? Uh, and I I told her, well, you know, doors probably closed at this point. I'm older. You know, that's something you get into when you're in your twenties and early thirties. Uh, but there was opportunity. Uh, I started out uh, flying with a uh, airline called Wheeler Airlines uh, as a co-pilot. Uh, and uh, ended up going into charter for a bunch of years and becoming a chief pilot for a charter company and uh, eventually ended up going with the major airlines and uh, 
to this day still so, still so do that as a as a second career and trying to try to juggle two careers. But uh, so during that whole period of you know eighty seven forward, I really rebirthed that flying aspect that I had uh, pursued early on and let go to to do the music. Wow, um, have you ever been recognized by any uh, passengers? Uh, most most of the flying that I did besides charter has been uh, cargo. Uh, the, the company I flew for until recently was a uh, FedEx feeder, and the company I'm flying with now is a UPS feeder. Oh. Uh, so there's an there's an expression that uh, that's going around that we use that basically says Box, boxes don't bitch. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if the customers will appreciate hearing that. Appreciate hearing that too much, but uh, you know, basically, uh, cargo is what I've what I've been doing over the last uh, decade now. So if they recognize you, it would be a stowaway. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of one of those hundred fifty pound boxes that shouldn't have been allowed on board. Yeah. So are you are you aware of any other uh, aviation buffs or pilots and and music? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to try to think of the trumpet player's name out in the West Coast, who's uh, also a pilot. I think um, oh uh, the keyboard player that did uh, in the groove, uh, Ronnie Frank. I think Ronnie Franklin flies, huh. um, and there's there's quite a few. I'm just trying to think of names, but there's quite a few people that I come across. Who have that dual career and the tie-in with music and flying? And you know, it's a it's a left brain right brain thing. You know, one side is artistry and you can be free. The other side is you know, do this like clockwork and very uh, precision oriented. Uh, so it's definitely a two hemisphere of the brain kind of thing. Uh, it seems like it in one sense, but in the other sense, it seems like I mean, you had um, classical training, and so you're kind of you know, you have to be I'm sure very focused and you know, dialed in for that in your background so that part of it to me seems to be in line with a pilot yeah perhaps well i, I know one of the things that drives me crazy is when i when i tell my band members <laughs> four o'clock <laughs> you know and guys will drift in at 4 15 4 30 and i just put my head down checking my head going look you know i if if we're one minute late out of the gate i'm writing reports you know i i, I would do endless paperwork uh so four four o'clock to me means you know, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. Uh, so I, I, that's the aspect I can't relate to. But hey, that's you know, a lot of musicians are like that. That's it's the way it is. So can't get too up, upset about it. So be honest, Tom. You know, when you're up there, do you ever put an autopilot and just start blowing? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, the FAA would be all over me. In the well, we'll talk about that off the air. <laughs> so. All right. So when you came back in the back to music, when you came back in in the mid '90s, I noticed that that uh, album uh, "Mode Jamaica Funk" was on uh, another label, Hip Hop Records, and you did several for that label. Right. And that record um, was a lot of pop covers. Um, right. Was that something that you wanted to do, or did you get directed to to do that? Uh, it, it was an opportunity. Uh, the the uh, label executive was a guy who I'd met years prior to that. He started his own label, a gentleman named Yusuf Gandhi, um, who actually has a label. The, the parent label is called Silver, Silver Screen, uh, and they did movie soundtracks, uh, compiling movie, movie soundtracks. Uh, but they ventured out 
in pulling uh, artists from back in the 70s and 80s. Lenny White was on the label. I think Bernard was on the label also. Uh, Patches Stewart, uh, who they felt needed to be needed to have an opportunity to be to be resurrected. Uh, and so their whole thing was merging this sound of, of as 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 the name implies, hip hop, with bop and jazz uh, flavor. Uh, that was the whole direction of the label, and it did it did fairly well. I think it was a little ahead of its time, uh, because that's pretty pop. Jazz and bop is uh, hip hop and bebop is pretty popular now, but at that particular period, it was just being birthed, and so I, I'm not sure that uh, the timing was right on the label, but it was definitely a good effort. Is that also the genre they call acid jazz? Uh, acid jazz is more of a, I think, more of a UK thing. Uh, it's more of a, 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 broken, a broken beats, free-flowing drum beats over jazz kind of uh, hip-hop style, uh, as opposed to more as opposed to the, the, the American uh, hip-hop. Uh, so it's, it's definitely more UK-based to me. Well, I'll tell you, you, um, you came out in 96 with uh, one of my favorite records of yours, and that's Another Shade of Brown. Shade of Brown. Yeah. Uh, just, it's, it's back to basics, more of acoustic jazz, and it's a great sound, and what a great band. You had uh, Ron Carter on there, and you just Muhammad. Yep. How did that one come to be? And I'm, I'm guessing it was sort of like, I mean, you must have been loving that. I did. I did. You know, it was, it was like, finally, you know, get a chance to play some. Uh, and and some of the write, I remember uh, Scott Yanow did a write up, and basically said, "Well, it's about time." <laughs> you know, it's like you know what what, what took you so long? Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a chance to breathe, just a chance to say, you know what, I, I do play this music, I do enjoy this music, uh, and you know, again with what what powerhouses? I mean, Ron Ron is a foundational cat that's played with everybody who is anybody. Uh, Idris also. Uh, Javon Jackson was on that. I think Scott Golding, uh, Scott Golding was on there. Uh, so it was it was a very good record. I enjoyed it quite a bit. How, how did it kind of come together, though? How did you get connected with those guys for that particular project? Uh, just well, uh, Yusuf Gandhi at the Hip Hop Record, Hip Hop Records, realized also that my background was in bebop, and uh, he basically said, "Hey, I don't know if the public realizes that you play jazz. What about just doing a straight ahead record?" And uh, so, you know, we were, we were all on the same page at that point. We just didn't want to chase trying to figure out where commerciality was going. We just felt, let's get back to basics. Let's just put something that, you know, the jazz audience will buy because it's straight ahead jazz and these great players on it. Uh, and so it was just a very simple record. I think we did it in a couple of days. Sometimes those are the best. Yep. You know, you just knock it out and you get that, you that vibe and you get the interaction. Great stuff. Um, then in uh, a few years later, you came back with another record that was similar to the two before, which uh, had a lot of cover tunes, uh, stuff like uh, Mazes, Joy and Pain, and um, Never Stop, and the aforementioned uh, Juicy Fruit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So well, that happened, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> So, but you had some interesting players in here too. You had Christian uh, McBride. Um, you had a rapper on here. Uh, you had Diane Reeves doing some vocals. What what can you tell me uh, or tell us about that record? Well, first of all, without a shadow of a doubt, my favorite song in that 
whole record. Uh, that, that album's called Arn Brown. And uh, my favorite song on that whole record is Someday We'll All Be Free. Uh, Diane Reeves has a voice like butter. Uh, and she just belts out that melody. Uh, we, found, we found with her style and her voice and just basically weaving the trumpet around that. I wasn't playing lead on that. I was just kind of supporting her on that. Um, we still made it a trumpet song, but it, it, it was woven in such a way that she and I were kind of in, intertwined. Uh, and, I, and I love that song above everything else on the whole record. That's my that's my favorite favorite track. Uh, a nice horn arrangement, it also. Uh, but that that came about the same you know through the same producers through uh, Yusuf Gandhi. Uh, would just you know getting back to what GRP was about, just making some quality jazz records you know they're not worried so much about where's it going to fit how's it going to get airplay because all that came into place by that point you know that was smooth jazz was really starting to take off at that point uh so you know world world music so i mean you got stations that unless you were in that format they just wouldn't play your music uh but that was again just get back to the basics of grp uh and it, it was a it was a good record i really believe that's a very strong record uh, did okay. Didn't you know? Didn't knock the numbers out of the ballpark. But uh, again, it's something I could be proud of. And and at that time, you even had you had the satellite stations coming, and they were very much playing smooth jazz and all kinds of different jazz genres. So, right. Yeah. Um, so when what about the song selection, Tom? You know, did you pretty much say I want to do these, or did someone suggest some of them, or how? Did they it was pretty much suggested. Uh, you know that in in, in that aspect. Uh, you know, choosing the you know sub producers and the songs is pretty much done, but it, it wasn't that bad because at least you know it, it wasn't a case of tracking and coming and play. It was you know it, it, we were part of the whole creation process. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't GRP, but on the other hand, it wasn't the whole Maurice Star you know uh, problem that we had before. Where were most of the recordings actually done? No, they were done in New York. Uh -huh. in, uh, in New York City. Convenient for you was that before you moved? Uh, not you know that that was we were in we were in Virginia Beach by that point. Uh, uh -huh. so that was long after I had said that I used to New York. Yeah, I moved out of New York in eighty eighty six. Ah, okay. So after that, Tom, it was another one of your the famous Tom Brown uh, hiatuses. Yep. Because it was about uh, 10 years until you came back with uh, SUP uh, in 2010, uh, another label. So, you know, what were you doing in the new millennium up to that point? Uh, trying to figure out how to make a living as a musician and uh, l lamenting that I was a full-time pilot not doing music on the side. Uh, thank, thank God for aviation because that <laughs> kept me going at that point. Um, you know, there, there was still the royalty checks. I mean, Jamaica Funk. And that era, I mean, from, from 1980 until today, uh, once every six months I get a check from Sony, that's still great. Once every three months I get BMI checks at publishing, that's still great. Uh, so th those continued. Uh, but going out and touring full-time, you know, it had kind of gone into a quiet period. So during a period like that, did, did you – practice much i mean we really didn't even talk about practicing i don't know if you're the kind of person that you know did regularly practice or not but you know, how'd, how'd you how'd you keep your chops up did, did you 
have to fulfill you know your 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 need to play during that time or did you just take time off uh yeah well 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 the the practicing is a daily routine for me um my my wife can kiss me hello when i come in the house and say oh you haven't practiced today uh so yeah, it's it's a it's a daily routine I'll, I'll never stop doing that you know until i stop breathing um the playing i mean it it got to the point where I would just find clubs, find friends where I was playing, go do local gigs. Uh, There's plenty of restaurants that I would just take trash down to and play background dinner music. Uh, wasn't too proud, just a matter of playing some music somewhere. Um, I, I've done many a local gig, done many a wedding, uh, wedding reception, you know, play classical trumpet at weddings, uh, just do anything to keep the music going. Uh, one one thing, one thing I tell a lot of young players is that you cannot let a label define who you are. Uh, that was was that was one of the big minuses that I had back with. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but with the, with the head of Arista at that time, was that I let CD or those initials? Yes, uh, let him define who I was, and I refused to do that again. Uh, whether I sell records or don't sell records, I'm a musician. I will continue to be a musician. Uh, I will continue to act like a musician in practice and so on. Uh, and record sales has nothing to do with that. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, uh, if, if you let, if you let sales define who you are, that's, that's why you see so many musicians jumping out of windows and committing suicide and stuff like that. And I'm not there. I'm not going to be there. Well, you know, and during that time, you know, self-recording became so much easier, you know, with, um, you know, uh, digital recorders and things like that. So, you know, did, did you record some of your own things? Did you have some, some musings that you put on, on track somewhere? Is there a big, you know, hard drive somewhere with, or, or tapes with a bunch of... Uh, I, I, got, I, I got ideas, uh, but I wasn't really set up as yet to do self-recording i mean I, I had some equipment but it wasn't really until the legacy album uh that i i said enough of this you know i'm not going to be dependent on a label uh everything is going digital anyway as far as distribution uh, you know even uh, I, I spoke with universal recently and they are set up for digital distribution i said so what's the difference between that and cd baby why would I sign to a label where you're going to pay me X? Uh, when I can sign, when I can just go with CD Baby or iTunes and know how much I'm selling, and you know, now if you're going to put physical product in stores, that's another thing. But it wasn't until this last CD that that I really just said, you know what, I'm doing it myself. I'm not going to worry about it. I've got, you know, I've got the, the skills. It doesn't take. I, I learned a long time ago from engineers that the two most important elements of the recording studio are a good set of speakers and a good engineer. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. If you can hear it well and you have musicality, you can create. And that's what I have behind me. I have a very simple, it's not an elaborate setup, it's just a couple of sets of Yamaha speakers. As I got at a pawn shop uh, for a good price, and they ended up being NS10s and, you know, stuff that would sell for hundreds of dollars. A good quality mixer, nothing fancy, and uh, Pro Tools. And the whole Legacy album was done right here. 
Right, so that legacy album came out uh, within the past year, yep. and um, it's great to to. I mean, it's so great to hear you back again. And this time it was only six years, so um, we're thankful for that. And it's you know again a good mix of um, you know some kind of funky things, some jazzy things, some mellower things, and you have some interesting guests on on here as well. Um, you know, I, I particularly like Bounce, and you got Bobby Lyle on that one. That was mm -hmm. one of the funkier ones. Why don't you talk about a little bit more specifically about the album and some of the people on it? Uh, my my desire to do this album came about when I was invited to do a jazz festival over in the Netherlands. Um, I, I guess that was the catalyst for me to get this thing rolling uh, because I met someone over there who just floored me. Uh, and when I met her and she sang, I said, "That's it. I gotta get her on record. I gotta. I'm gonna start this record rolling." Uh, I met this young lady who is from the Philippines, uh, and she's living in the Netherlands, and she was contracted to sing on Jamaica Funk. And I said, "Ain't no way she's gonna be able to sing Jamaica Funk." Right. I mean, you know, she's she's she she she's not <laughs> she's not black. She's she's Filipino. How is she gonna sing the funk? Right. Just that that was my you know naive naive logic, but. And she opened her mouth and basically just told me to shut up. Uh, Joyce, her name is Joyce San Mateo. Uh, and I basically vowed that uh, upon hearing her, I would start this project. And uh, so she and I teamed up, business partners, uh, and basically did this thing transatlantic. I mean, we, uh, Bounce was done transatlantic, uh, where we sent tracks back and forth, worked on it uh daydreaming was done transatlantic so so it's it's a new day uh e email and pro tools it's a new day uh, i mean it's just about at the point where uh we we could sync up live and do stuff it's not quite there yet because of delay factors but it's it's almost there uh but as far as putting tracks together it's too easy it's it's very very easy to do it now uh, and i would suggest that any musician that has a desire to record you don't need a label anymore and you don't need to pay two hundred dollars an hour in a recording studio it's very easy to do well because i mean the one thing they used to do is not just the distribution but they would also do promotion but, yeah. i mean they're not doing much of that anymore either and, and they only do it if they're you know happen to be really behind your particular record so well i i had hired uh I'm, I'm gonna leave the company nameless but i had hired a major smooth jazz uh, and only I say smooth jazz only because today there's no other market for a jazz artist. I mean, there's either straight ahead jazz, smooth jazz, or uh, R&B. There's really no other market uh, for an artist to go in like myself. Uh, and if I was going to go R&B, <laughs> I'd probably have to pay more in payola <laughs> than the cost to make the record. Uh, and that's just a reality of the day. Payola was supposed to be illegal, but it's bigger nowadays than it's ever been. Uh, so smooth jazz was the, was the niche that I had to go in, but that doesn't say that this record is a smooth jazz record. It's just that's what, that's how I had to market it. Um, but as far as the material and the songs, we it's just something that came together. I mean, I was given some tracks, we composed some tracks. Uh, it just felt very very right with you know Joyce doing what she did and you know. Bobby's contribution, the record just basically came together. Uh, and so it was a very pleasurable pleasurable record to make. And uh, just having that whole feeling of doing it myself and putting it out 
uh, was was on time. It's amazing, Tom, how much you know American music has influenced all these other countries, and you know they've embraced uh, jazz and funk and so many of the um, you know blues guys and. Um, I, you know, I haven't gone over there myself, but I hear, you know, the receptions are amazing. And a lot of times they appreciate more than the Americans appreciate because we're all spoiled and jaded here. But did you actually get much chance to, to play overseas? Yep. Yeah, I go overseas regularly. I'm getting ready to go to uh, the UK and Spain uh, here in about another month or so. I go to Japan pretty regularly. Uh, and, and you're right. It's a different it's, – it's a more well-rounded audience. Uh, so you, you can play stuff from back in the 70s, and you and, and they'll appreciate it. Uh, if you go to Japan, it was the weirdest thing the first time I went to Japan because the audience will sit there, and you could be playing your heart out, and they'll sit there and not make a sound. And, you know, your immediate reaction is, well, I guess they don't like it, right? But as soon as you stop playing, they'll go wild and do applause. Uh, they're, they're, they listen. They appreciate the music. They really... Uh, and, and even the musicians, if I send my tracks over to learn the parts that the musicians are hiring to play, they'll dissect the music and listen to every little nuance. Uh, so it's just a, it's a different kind of audience there. It's just, it's just a more appreciative audience uh, overseas. So we talked about, um, first off, before moving on, I wanted to ask you, you know, how's Legacy been, been received and are you satisfied with how it's doing in that regard? I am. Uh, it's it's doing very well. Uh, I obviously can't compete with the numbers from the early Arista GRP days. Uh, I don't even think those numbers apply to jazz artists these days. Um, but it's it's doing very well. It's, it's been uh, it's getting a tremendous amount of airplay. Uh, one thing that I did find out with the Legacy CD, and you you were asking as far as uh, promotion, uh, I had hired a company uh, to initially promote a single from that CD. And so they they basically emailed a jazz blast to a lot of uh, uh, stations that were on the list that they had, and come to find out that all I had to do was do the same thing myself because you know I get in touch with the radio stations and it was like Tom where you been we haven't heard you in ages oh yeah get send us the record and that's been the response across the board uh, so I just I just do it myself. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to spend $3,000 for six months or whatever it is to promote the record when I'm getting the same response doing it myself. Uh, there are companies that do that. There are some major producers that do that. I'm going to save that money and put it, you know, towards vacation for my wife and family or something. Here's an idea. You can throw singles out of the airplane, you know, and then they'll buy the, rep, the whole album. Well, the FAA would be on doing that, too. <laughs> the Tom Brown care packages. <laughs> So, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit, but, you know, I want to touch again on, you know, what seems to be like a golden age for, for jazz being the 70s. I mean, at that time, you know, you had uh, everything happening with jazz. You had jazz rock, you had jazz funk, you had jazz pop, you had jazz R&B. And so much of it was successful. There were so many great artists. You know, why do you think it was so much different at that time? Uh, mainly because people were still willing to experiment. Uh, you know, one, one, one thing the jazz purists will say is, ah, I, I just like bebop. I just like, I doubt seriously that if Miles Davis were alive today, 
uh, that he would be playing seven steps to heaven. I seriously doubt that. You know, he, 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 when he died, he was already well into a new era playing new music. Uh, Wayne Shorter and Weather Report were playing new music back in the 70s. So all these jazz artists that were known for playing Bach were, you know, it was called fusion then or crossover, but they were going into a new style. And, and people weren't afraid to do that then. Now it's become, you know, you, you got to wear a suit and tie to play jazz. You got to, you know, if it's anything later than 1955, it's not, it's not pure jazz. We can't do that. Uh, there's been, there's so many pigeonholes onto being an artist that isn't, it's not even artistry. I mean, what, what happened? Did jazz die in 1960? I mean, what, you know, the, the, the guys who were from that era would not be playing what they played in 1960 if they were here today. Um, and that's already been, you know, Miles didn't, Freddie didn't, uh, Donald Byrd didn't. Uh, so we have to assume it would have gone on to a new plane, a new a new era. Um, but not so for a lot of folks who were, you know, jazz peers. And that, that bothers me. Uh, it, it, it irks me. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why that's, you know, the seven, jazz has always been a music that has been representative of what's been going on culturally. Uh, so in the 40s, you know, during during wartime, there was the, there was a the swing era. There was, you know, good times, dance era. In the 50s, it was a very, you know, 50s and early 60s, it was, it was, it was a political statement, the cool era, the bebop era. Uh, you know, music in the cool era really reflected a lot of the, the, the rage and a lot of the the outlet that was happening in terms of the new movement, you know, uh, Black Power movement. And, uh, so music has always been reflective in that sense, but that's been lost in a lot of ways. You know, music has just become very generic. Uh, you, you'd probably tell me just as well as I'd say it. I mean, if you hear one soprano sax player, you've heard 10 of them. I mean, it's just, it's a different era. You know? Yeah. Um, why do you think, Tom, that so many um, jazz artists, at least you know, from the late '60s and the '70s, uh, did forays into funk specifically? What's the relationship between funk and jazz that seems to have some synergy? You know, um, it seems like almost every not every, but so many um, respected and well-known 70s jazz artists did some funk at some point. And there's even some funk artists that have gone back and are doing jazz now. Funk, uh, again, speaking from a jazz perspective, funk has a swing to it just like jazz does. Uh, you can actually swing on top of a funk group and it works just fine. Um, and, and then, as I mentioned, a lot of the, the term I use is pre-funk, but a lot of jazz artists were playing that kind of crossover funky stuff like Sidewinder from Lee Morgan or uh, Watermelon Man, uh, you know, some of Herbie Hancock's early stuff. That was, you know, starting to cross the line into what became like a funny, you know, all that early CTI stuff with George Benson, you know, that was crossing the line into, into funkier grooves back then in the 60s. So 
you know, there, there, there are groups that approached funk from a more R&B standpoint, and then there are groups that approached funk from a more jazz standpoint. And there's definitely a, a jazz flavoring that works that works over funk music to me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those artists, um, George Duke and uh, Lenny White and Alphonse Mazan and Billy Cobham and Herbie, of course. I mean, it goes on. There's there's dozens of them. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a certain bond and relationship. And um, I think you're right. Some of the rhythms, you know, and, and in funk, there's a lot of improvising, too, if you do it right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, there's improvisation there. Uh, that that was when the whole you know moog synthesizer and different sounds synthesized sounds were coming out. So just the whole concept you know, with weather report uh, of of you know experimenting with sounds. You know Joe Zauner was you know oh check this sound out. Let me let me repatch and check this sound out. Uh, of course that was back in the day of patching synthesizers. But I mean it was all about creating new sounds, creating new vibes. You know creating new textures. Uh, uh, the, the key word there is creating, you know, and that's what jazz is all about, and, and funk also, uh, just just creating a vibe. Uh, so it worked. I mean, you could cross over between those two, and it worked just fine. So do you feel uh, blessed in a sense that you came up in that era? I do. I do. Um, I, I don't want to be locked into a particular sound but i'm glad i came up in an era in which i had the chance to hear different things and those different things will influence whatever output uh that i might create uh george benson made a comment one time that uh, he was he was asked about something that i was doing and I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have recorded this because i will keep it and use it for prosperity uh but but he made a comment that basically said uh Tom is believable in whatever he does, and that's that's what I strive for. That's what I strive for. So if I'm if I'm playing if I'm playing a trumpet etude or or a, a Handel a piece by hand, I want to place myself in the king's court as the king's coming in, and that's how I'm going to play the trumpet. I'm going to play it, you know, wriggly and royally, and here comes the king, all all hail. That's how the trumpet's meant to be played. Well, same thing in jazz. If, I, if I'm or, or funk, if I'm playing in a certain vibe and it's got a, a lean to it, <laughs> and I joke with them as you know, I say, let's let's walk on the stage like this because that's the vibe, and so the music should have a lean to it. Uh, you know, uh, that it's all about being believable. I mean, if you're playing something that's not believable, then you're missing the whole point. Yeah, I think that's what we were talking about earlier, but that's a great way to put it. I mean, I think it's it's that authenticity. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, and the audience can sense that, they can they, feel it. They can sense that immediately. They can sense it immediately. You know, we talked about um, Freddie Hubbard being an idol of yours. Um, who are a couple of other guys that you st uh, shared studio or stage time with that are particularly memorable or special? Uh, Bob James was great. Uh, you know, he, 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 there's another producer uh, that started out as a staff producer on Columbia. Uh, and then, you know, when the labels got rid of all their staff producers, just went independent. Uh, that was actually the downfall of the labels, but did great for the producers. Uh, Bob James was wonderful. Joe Sample had a chance to uh, do a record with. A uh, record called The Hunter, which, you know, God rest him, he's a massive musician. Joe took the multi-track 
of that record out to California, from what I've heard, and allowed it to pass through X-ray at the airport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and all, all we could do is just go, all right, <laughs> you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of work, you know, but uh, still, still pull the record out of it. You know, it's it still survived, and you, you got a recording out of it. Um, Shared to stay with, with George. George was wonderful. Um, bunch of bunch of guys. Uh, too numerous to even even remember at this point. Well, those are three great ones. There, three of my very favorites. Mm. Uh, and interesting, uh, two keyboard players that you mentioned. Oh yeah, two great piano players in particular. Um, is there anyone that you wish you could have uh, played with that you've not been able to? Who would be a Two or three at the top of that list. Uh, I have to think about that for a moment. Um, I'm sure there are, um, but ha having having three boys has kind of deteriorated whatever memory I had. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one of them is currently 16. I'm I'm, I'm 63 with a 16 year old, so that's just so much fun. Uh, I have a twelve-year-old. Oh, okay, so you, yes, sir. <laughs> you understand? Yeah, I thought I was—I thought I was done with this, but here I go again. <laughs> yeah, understood. Well, you can uh, ruminate on that for a minute uh, while I ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up. Um, the other one's going to require you to think, though, too, though. So I apologize for that. <laughs> and that is, you know, when you look back, um, you know, concerning your musical accomplishments, what are you most proud of you know we talked about some things that you aren't so proud of what are you most proud of uh i'm i'm proud that i didn't have to resort to uh the cursing and carrying on and negativity and you know just really doing something i'm not about spiritually on stage uh i know a lot of artists that performance is x-rated basically um i'm glad i didn't do that Recording-wise, I'm actually most proud of the Legacy CD. Um, I'm, I'm actually most proud of the last CD I did because I, I, I like my earlier material. I, I love doing stuff with Dave. Um, but I feel that my playing has matured over the last you know couple of decades. Um, and I feel it comes across flowingly on this last CD. Uh, maybe if I hadn't done it myself, I wouldn't feel that way. But just being able to put out a CD that you produced and you engineered, and you, it, it's a different different feeling to it. It's a different feeling to it. It, it may very well not be the best CD. Uh, but playing-wise, it's something that I could listen to again and again, which is not something that I do in my earlier works. Um, as I mentioned earlier, basically, once my earlier works were recorded, I was like, okay, next. You know, I just wanted to move on from it. And, and that, that includes Jamaica Funk. Um, so when you perform uh, nowadays, you know, what, you know, what type of uh, set list might somebody experience? Uh, definitely, well, Jamaica Funk and Thais High are two stables that I will always perform. Uh, the audience... Loves those. I, will, I, I, I tried years ago, I mean decades ago, not to perform Jamaica Funk. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> so, so, I would always do that. Uh, definitely some of the newer material. Uh, there's a track on the new CD called Mandela. 
uh, which which uh, goes over very well, mainly because it's audience participation. Uh, it's a good subject, but also I've learned to just you know what I'm having fun. Let's all have fun, and 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 so it's an audience sing along basically. Uh, and then some staples we do uh, uh, sweetest taboo, uh, you know st stuff that lends itself to instrumental interpretation, but still is like a funky groove that that works. Uh, where I could put some some jazz flavorings on top of it, uh, so just a variety of things. You know, two or three things from an old record, two or three new things, and then some some uh, recently fairly current uh, uh, covers. And and no hiding behind amplifiers. No sir, <laughs> no sir. I'm out there dancing around stage, having fun with the audience. Those days are gone. Outstanding. And we're we're not gonna have to wait another six years, are we? Nope. I'm working on a new one right now, as a matter of fact. Beautiful. That's what we like to hear. Yeah, so. equipment's on behind me. Working on a new one. <laughs> well, aside from that, um, what else? You know, how can people keep up with the latest? Uh, you know, going on with Tom Brown and and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm doing quite a bit of touring. Uh, they can keep up with that on my website, which is triple uh, w tombrown.org. Uh, Brown's got it. For those who don't know, Brown has an e on it. So it's, it's T-O-M-B-R-O-W-N-E dot org. Uh, or you could check me out on Facebook at uh, Tom Brown Jamaica Funk. Uh, and I'll be happy to respond and check you into my page. Beautiful. So before I wrap this up, Tom, is there anything else we didn't cover that you want to get out there to the people? Well, just one thing that wasn't said is, is uh, without the audience, uh, without the jazz listener, basically musicians would just stay in their room and practice. So it's it's them, the audience, uh, that we, the musicians, need to say thank you to for supporting this music, uh, for keeping this music alive all these decades, uh, for going out and supporting live jazz. Most importantly, for passing the, the history and the heritage of this music on to the young. Uh, that, that is one of the crucial things I bring out on stage, that if you like this music, pass it along to your kids, because uh, that's, who's, that's where the support from this music is going to come. And we appreciate it. Are, are you seeing a variety of ages at your shows? We are. We are. Uh, and, and a lot of that, believe it or not, is due to sampling and hip-hop. Uh, because when a lot of the youth find out that the grooves that they like in these sampled songs are actually tracks that have been out there for decades, they come to the concert and they check it out. Mm -hmm. So it works. You know, it's a, it's a prophecy coming full scale, I suppose. <laughs> Cyclical. Cyclical. All right, great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences and, and all that. It's been a blast talking to you. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I enjoyed it myself. That's what I like to hear. So I want to remind viewers that um, be sure to look out for upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm. Catch up with uh, installments at funkinstuff.net and on YouTube. And also podcasts, uh, the audio version of iTunes and other leading podcast providers. If you're an artist or music industry figure interested in being on this show, or you're a fan wanting to see a particular artist on the show, email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net, and we'll try to get it done. Until next time, on behalf of Tom Brown, my fellow North Carolinian, <laughs> this is Scott Goldfine saying, keep on vibing to the rhythm of the one. Keep on vibing to the rhythm of the one.